Hey Taylor, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, Natarash. Uh, so we met, uh, you know, because you're working at Microsoft Incubator, uh, and you're doing a bunch of interesting things there. Uh, but before you know, talking about that, uh, I want to start with, you know, what was your early career like? You know, what was your education um, and sort of your journey into tech, uh, so that you know the audience knows where you're coming from. Yeah, certainly. So I my journey into tech. Uh, uh, was a little bit non-traditional, I think. I never studied uh, much in terms of tech. My my academic background, I, I majored in um, uh, philosophy and history and biochem at uh, undergrad with a, a business honors degree. Um, then I went on and got a master's in cognitional theory and then went to law school. What my LinkedIn doesn't say is that I had been a full stack programmer on the web stack uh, since about high school. I was self-taught. I, I kind of rode the building websites um, when you, when the internet was coming out sort of thing. Um, and uh, freelance programmed through all of my academic career, which paid for my uh, my school bills. Um, and also kind of led to the inception of my first tech company uh, while I was in law school, uh, Fizzy, Fizzy Media. Um, but yeah, so so I, I, that's kind of how I got into tech. I've always been a bit of a programmer um, and uh, made money doing so. So. Uh, so did you pass your bar and became a lawyer or uh, did no, you actually that angle? I did not. I, uh, so I, I did graduate, um, had a blast at Boston College Law. Um, but Fizzy Media was doing well by the time I graduated. So rather than um, rather than uh, going the lawyer route, I continued growing Fizzy. Um, we started out as a, as a kind of a full stack web dev agency and built websites and web apps and mobile apps for Fortune, everything from Fortune 500 companies all the way to small kind of mom and pop shops. But as part of uh, building out that agency, we got really good at um, learning management systems. And so we built our own learning management system and sold that as a product um, uh, for a while as well. What is a well. learning management system? Uh, learning management, you could think of it as the back end of Coursera. Um, back when we did this, of course, though, the Coursera was uh, was uh, not around. And so the the unique piece of our learning management system was that we could instantiate each of our uh, instances of our product on your own server so that you didn't have to pay a licensing or a recurring fee necessarily as part of that. Um, uh, we we did two different models there. That lighter version was for kind of the the solopreneurs who wanted to be able to teach and uh, offer and and have complete ownership of all of their curriculum, um, who and whose margins really didn't uh, allow for a whole lot of subscription fees. And then we'd also do, uh, and our, our bigger clients, we did have subscription fees in terms of be, building out pieces of the platform, making it a little bit more unique for each of their use cases. Um, and uh, and really, the B two B side of our business is where most of our revenue came from. Uh, what, what did you start out thinking of it as an agency, or were you just you know picking up freelancing projects, just you know pay college bills, like you said? Like, uh, was the plan to make it an agency? Yeah, so we started it as an agency because we were poor students, right? So we needed uh, cash flow for for food and that sort of thing. Um, 
And what really turned it into an agency is that I bumped into some like-minded grad students who also had some chops in the design uh, space. I, I'm a back-end guy. Give me a give me a command line, please. I, I don't want to move pixels. Um, so when the two of us came together and had a lot of uh, synergies and overlap, we were like, oh yeah, we should instantiate this. So we we did. We grew it to about um, uh, grew it to about 15 people uh, as as an agency. Um, uh, all bootstrapped and it was out of that that our kind of product line came as we had a saw that we were able to do similar things for a broad swath of our clients perhaps because all of us were a bit academic we the learning management system kind of came naturally to us because we we all taught uh we were around a lot of teachers we worked for a lot of different academic institutions um and really understood their needs well um but uh, but yeah, it, didn't, it started as a way of like, how, how do we pay the bills? Um, and then we realized we actually had a, a product company, an nascent product company hiding inside our agency that allowed us to uh, uh, make money while we slept rather than uh, charging just for services. Yeah. Uh, so at some point you uh, sold FC, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Sold it in 2014. So how, how many years did you run the agency? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was about eight and it was an interesting sale. So we we weren't venture funded, right? We bootstrapped it all the way. Yeah. Uh, when we sold it in 2014, the sale was primarily a sale of assets. So we sold off all of our client base. We sold off all of our uh, intellectual property and learning management system um, to two different agencies uh, that, that continue it forward. And we still have clients on our stack out there today. Um, I did keep a few around and we kept the name of the company. Uh, and it's been kind of an umbrella for myself and my original founding partner to run a bunch of um, uh, experiments. We've been experimenting with a with a couple of different uh, small businesses. There's also it also has a fairly robust passive income stream because of a couple of the uh, a couple of the things that we kept around as part of the the build. Um, but yeah, the intent was to be entirely passive because uh, my my founding partner is now a professor of philosophy at Villanova, and of course, I'm I'm a FT at Microsoft. So, what was the passive stream like? Is it a product uh, that you still kept, or uh, as a service? I'm, I'm I'm assuming it's a product, right? If you're not actively running. Yeah, actually. So what it is is it's a, a gigantic WordPress server farm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's uh, managed entirely by um uh. Bash scripts that we built in order to keep everything running at, with a very low um, low overhead and low margin. So uh, it's it it's a funny sort of thing um, because it's so low touch. But we have we have hundreds of uh, WordPress sites on there that uh, we guarantee um, uh, really best in class sort of uptime, best in class performance, and uh, a really strong. Um, uh, security guarantee. Um, and uh, it ends up being very low touch because we automate all of the uh, processes for managing all of that. And we also are very opinionated as to what you're able to use in your WordPress site. And uh, we send out benchmarks every month for how your site's performing and they're consistently fantastic. And uh, uh, yeah, so it ends up being a nice so sort of automated posting product for WordPress sites. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, and I can go out on Fizzy and now host my WordPress site on your uh, service slash product. We aren't taking new customers at okay. the moment um, because the onboarding takes me like three hours. 
Uh, and that's not something I want to do at the moment. Um, but it, but we could open up the the floodgates again. Right now we're just we're just using it with the hundreds. I I think we have about three hundred and seventy five uh, customers at the moment. Um, uh, and and that's a nice number, and it's a little lifestyle passive income stream, and and uh, it's something we could grow at some point in time, but it's not interesting enough for us to do at that at the moment. Yeah. So where do you host um, uh, these servers? Yeah, we host it on top of a custom GCP instance. Interesting. Because WordPress is such an interesting thing in itself, right? Because, it is. Like, I, I don't know, like the number of websites on the internet that run on WordPress are still about like 40% or like it something is. crazy yeah. like that. Uh, in spite of like so many no-code local tools that mm -hmm. come every day with unicorn valuations. I mm -hmm. still use WordPress for all my websites because mm -hmm. like, why not? Like, I don't see any like Webflow or all these guys coming up with new stuff. Like, I don't see any reason why to use those. Like when you once get yeah. WordPress, right? Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Like, why does WordPress is so sticky and it's still being used so much? Uh, it did a really good job of building a strong community around it. Um, there's a huge community of WordPress folks. And I think uh, having the the open source version of it, where it was really simple to build on, uh, along with the premium side of things, it just served everybody's needs and, uh, and a lot of people could build on it. So um, I think I think those are the primary reasons. I mean, it's, it's why we got into it originally, too. Uh, it was a nice, simple framework for uh, that ended up being very, very extensible uh, in a variety of ways as well. Um, are, are there are there better platforms out there for unique cases? Of course, but but WordPress ends up being extensible enough that you can you can do mostly whatever you need on it. Particularly now that that uh, it's um, really become a robust headless platform, so you're able to you're able to plug it into all kinds of different things in in a variety of different ways. And the the LMS is uh, has been iterated over. Uh, no, sorry, not the LMS. The CMS has been iterated over so many different users over you know decades now. Um, that that they have a they have a leg up in terms of uh, the um, user experience. They just know how it works because they've had twenty years of or whatever you have uh, users telling them what works and what doesn't. I I have my own theory of why WordPress works mm -hmm. so well. I think part of it is community, but part of it is the abstraction layer at which uh, it's built. Like it's it's at the right abstraction level uh, where you can deploy it on a your server. They will give you a deployment option. Uh, you can build plugins on top of it. Uh, and so the abstraction level it's built on is basically allowing, uh, because if you remove, like go up in the abstraction level a little bit or go down, uh, I think it wouldn't work. And hmm. that's one of the reasons why even like Shopify works. It's basically WordPress in every sense, mm -hmm. but just optimize it for e-commerce, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's at the same real abstraction level. and. Uh, you basically abstract away the complicated parts and you give the extensible parts are right there. And that's why I feel like Shopify works as well because it's exactly like WordPress, but optimized for e-commerce. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like the abstraction level was perfect. Like I feel the same with Airtable. I don't know if you've used Airtable. Mm -hmm. Like that was also like a right abstraction level at which a 
public B2C database has to be built at. Yeah. Uh, no, that's insightful. I, I, I concur. Yeah. Um, but uh, so after you sold uh, Fizzy, then uh, you started working on uh, Invention Science Fund. Yeah, well, actually, there's there's a brief uh, in between where I um I uh, was a business intelligence consultant for uh, you know for a hot minute. Uh, one of my clients ended up being Intellectual Ventures, um, and when I rolled off of that client and moved to T-Mobile, one of the VPs of Intellectual Ventures came and sought me down on the basis of some of my work, and he said, "Hey, I'm uh, moving to the Invention Science Fund, which is one of the three funds of Intellectual Ventures." And we are shifting it from a primarily a licensing based fund to a um, uh, to a venture studio. Uh, I want you to come and run operations as we build this uh, thing out. Uh, so I joined joined and um, we uh, came in, kind of uh, really leaned out the their whole framework, their whole model. Um, uh, went from eighty six people down to twelve people. Um, over the course of about two years, as we as we built the groundwork for it, we raised a fifty million dollar fund, um, and uh, yeah, started pushing out deep tech companies. Um, had a lot of great learnings and success there. Kind of iterating through that model, um, building the playbook, building the the pipeline. Um, super super interesting time, uh, particularly at a deep tech fund. You know, about half of our staff had PhDs in, in physics. And we had a gigantic lab over in Bellevue uh, where we were building, among other things, a nuclear reactor. Um, and uh, uh, being able to work in a venture studio with deep, te deep tech companies was a really powerful uh, career experience for me, particularly working with the, the rest of the team there. Um, just really insightful, driven uh, people that that uh, thrived in the the entrepreneurial mindset um, with a, with a strong kind of operations backbone there. So yeah, I mean, how what did you learn there, or like tell me about the process of because I looked at the portfolio there and it's completely deep tech. Uh, and sort of like invention-based uh, ideas. Uh, so what was the process of like capturing an invention and taking and productizing it and you know making a return out of it? Like what was the thinking process there? Yeah. So the, uh, and you can read Malcolm Gladwell's take on this in, a, in an article where he described our invention sessions. Um, and the invention sessions are a bit of a riff on like an innovation session or an envisioning session or things along those lines where you you come up with wild ideas within a particular problem space um, in a very unfettered sort of way. Um, and the whole goal of the session is to generate as many ideas as possible. That's the sole ROI you're looking for in those sessions. Um, but there's certain conditions you set for success in those sessions. And so the way that we ran those sessions, and I, and I, I ran uh, a number of them, um, is that we would prepare for months ahead of time in gathering all of the materials that related to the problem space. And by materials, I mean the scientific research in a particular problem space, the uh, market uh, and startup landscapes of that particular problem space. Um, uh, Things that people had written about it, books, articles, um, you know, 
YouTube videos, everything uh, along those lines. And the goal was to um, inform kind of the fermentation moment of when you're thinking about a problem. All of these things w wouldn't themselves um, be a solution necessarily, but they're all the things that someone who wanted to be completely informed or as as informed as possible about a set of problems um, had all of the raw material there. We'd also do customer discovery. We'd do customer interviews to understand those pain points. We'd bring people in um, uh, and run sessions with them where they would, you know, get deep into their own, um, the problems they are encountering so that everybody who is, and everybody who is part of the sessions had to understand those materials uh, deeply. We'd even quiz them on occasion. Um, it also helped that uh, Bill Gates, um, whenever he came to those sessions he would have all of those materials like completely grokked and so you you know you needed to have them grokked too so that you didn't you know uh, lose face in front of bill but um uh but the key uh, so we we'd get everybody all of those materials and have them go through them uh, a good month or so before the actual sessions happened um that gave everybody an, an even playing field in terms of, you know, I may be a physicist, I may be a biz dev person, I may be um, an attorney, I may be, uh, you know, a program manager, but I have all of the same raw material and my own perspective on it that I can bring to these sessions. And the sessions themselves then um, were set around particular problem spaces. And we'd start, we'd start each um, session and, and there's a variety of different kinds of sessions that we ran um, uh, with a lot of provocations, a lot of conversation, a lot of like wild thinking and post-it notes and whiteboards of just dumping ideas out uh, that had occurred to people or occurred in conversation or happened in the, in the hallway outside. Um, and we get all those ideas down, documenting everything. If it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. Right. Um, and then everybody would go away. Uh, so sometimes we'd run those innovation sessions, you know, three days in a row. Sometimes they'd be long, you know, nine hour days. Sometimes they'd be, you know, short hour and a half or three hour sessions. It depended on the context. Um, but we'd have a number of people who who were ob observers of the sessions who didn't uh, participate in the sessions themselves, who would take everything down. We'd record everything. We would uh, take um pictures or copies of, of any notes that people wrote down as part of that and really gather all the possible material and ideas that we could out of all of those sessions. Um, not only for patent reasons, the attorneys, some of the people gathering all these notes were attorneys in the room who were there in order to ensure that we had, you know, uh, the necessary information if a patent was to come out of those sessions um but also for being able to triage so we take all of that uh turn each of those little ideas into an object in our database uh, that i built out of salesforce um and we'd run those ideas through our triage mechanisms our triage mechanisms came at it from three different uh, perspectives one was the uh pure science perspective of uh you know is are there uh, things that um, are there, is this technically feasible, uh, and and what would be the experiments that we've run against that to determine whether it is. 
um, there was kind of the customer business side of things where is sure we might be able to make a self-drying t-shirt, but is the market worth, uh, you know, large enough there? Do the customers really want that? Um, which is another layer of set of experiments that we'd be running against these ideas to move them forward, uh, to, to potential prototypes. Um, and then the third was, uh, uh, kind of ensuring that it was within our, um, uh, our funds mandate, you know, we have a thesis at that fund that we, we were inventing technologies that were, you know, intended to dent the world. Um, that was the goal of this particular, uh, accelerator. And so we, we came across a lot of great ideas that probably could have been, you know, great $10 million companies, but they wouldn't have served the thesis of our particular, um, endeavor. And so that was our triage process and everything moved forward on the basis of experiments. So you mentioned um, Bill Gates in the meeting who, mm -hmm. I mean, I love the idea that you can have some crazy people in one room, just cracking out of ideas and see what comes and mm -hmm. that too, like with an intention of being prepared. Um, uh, but you mentioned Bill Gates was there in that meeting. Who else was there in that meeting? And, uh, I assume because usually in an accelerator program, there's a set of criteria you bring in people and they're sort of working on ideas and making progress. Mm -hmm. uh, so you seem to have a different approach here. Like who are all in that meeting? Like Yeah, the, it, the who was in the room varied. Mm -hmm. uh, there was always outside people, people who weren't part of the fund, mm -hmm. but there were also uh, some of the core uh, team members from the, from the fund. Um, but the list was very curated on what we were hoping to get out of that particular session. Mm. Um, it was vital that everybody came prepared with all of the materials, but also it was vital that they had some sort of perspective on the customer problems so mm. to be covered. Um, and so we'd invite, you know, we'd invite Nobel laureates. Uh, we'd invite scientists from universities. We'd invite um, uh you know, business people who had worked in that particular space, we'd invite um, occasionally, you know, we'd even invite a kind of uh, graduate students who were, you know, approaching the problem from a different way, um, who came to the sessions, it, it varied quite a bit. Now, uh, Bill G and Nathan Muravold and a couple of our other kind of really prolific inventors um, who would come uh, they would come. Oh, well, B Bill G was the primary investor in uh, in intellectual ventures um, because of his great relationship with Nathan Muirvold, of course. Um, and he'd come to some of these too because they were a lot of fun. He's a really brilliant guy, and uh, he would often set up some of the sets of problems that he wanted covered. And and we would, uh, you know, in some ways, were were an R and D extension of uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, uh, so yeah, I I. Uh, he particularly participated early on in the fund, in funds one and funds two in particular, and some of the ideas we're we're still driving forward in fund three from those uh, fund fund sessions as well. Um, uh, and the the later the later uh, invention sessions that we ran uh, tended to bounce around to different specific places around the world uh, where they had a particular expertise in you know in uh, like architected materials or or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, it, it the whoever was in the uh, the meeting uh, it, it depended on on the things that we were hoping to invent. So was uh, a meeting structured around a particular topic? Like 
you know, we have, uh, and you mentioned mm -hmm. like building a nuclear reactor, like, uh, so uh, you're bringing along people who are all doing research in that one particular topic, students, academicians, you know, anyone. Yeah, although the problems, problem. yes, although the problem sets ended up generally being framed from a problem sets sort of perspective. Yeah. So, you know, our initial sessions would be something along the lines of um, uh, energy. Energy is a problem. What are our ways of solving energy in a in a in a uh, climate friendly way, uh, in a in a globe friendly way, um, and it kind of we'd start at those higher white space levels and get to like well here we've done the burn down on all of these different possibilities, um, what things need to be true for some of these things to happen, and so those those high level uh, would start at that it start at that level and then we triage down to uh, it's looking like nuclear is something that we need to solve. Um, adjacent to that actually was we in those energy sessions in particular we realized that we needed to solve the United States grid even if you had all of the power that you needed right now the United States grid wouldn't be able to transport it in ways that it, need to, that it needs to be able to uh, for that to happen um, and so a lot of different kinds of well-framed problems would come out of the white space and you continually narrow and down until you were able to solution against a set of problems in a helpful way. Um, and uh, that was part of the that's part of the 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 iteration of it. Um, but we didn't want to constrain things to begin with and say like, oh, nuclear power is a way to go. Um, we had to come to that through the idea, the ideating sessions so that we could, we could, uh, approach things from the customer problem standpoint. So the idea is in the session, you are looking at alternatives or whether it's nuclear that works mm -hmm. as a solution solar or mm -hmm. something else that works as a solution and pros and cons, you're debating that and you're coming to a conclusion like, okay, yep. this is looking more reasonable from different angles. And then let's do research more on this and see if exactly. we can make something work. Exactly. Um, so what are some of the successful sort of ideas, companies, projects that came out of, uh, you know, this process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a, we had a fundamental technology breakthrough in um, the metamaterial space. Um, metamaterials are materials that can be architected to have properties not found in nature. Um, and so out of our fundamental metamaterials breakthrough came a, a number of different companies um, and they're uh, entertainingly, they're more or less broken up by where they fall on the, um, on the, uh, radio frequency spectrum. Um, so you could have a company per uh, bandwidth um, and they would all be doing different things. So we had a company that uh, uh, is able to beam power. Um, we have a company that's able to beam uh, cell signal. We have a company that's able to beam, um, you know, when you walk, go to the airport and you walk through the scanning machine. Yeah. It's able to do that scan uh, at scale. In fact, the last Dreamforce I went to in 2019, uh, it's a big Salesforce conference that yeah. takes over all of San Francisco. They were using uh, our scanner technology uh, for all of the sessions there. It's it's, in, it's, uh, uh, it's incredibly fast and, and very efficient. Um, my favorite company in that space actually is one called Mangata Networks. Mangata Networks is a competitor to Starlink, um, and they have both a terrestrial and a satellite constellation. Um, really, in, in my mind, is two separate unicorns as part of the same company. Um, 
And they're utilizing this beaming technology to reduce the infrastructure cost of having a, a terrestrial and satellite network um, as a really interesting com competition move to Starlink. They're able to, because of where they're able to place their satellites in orbit, um, they need a dramatically fewer number of them, uh, utilizing this beaming technology, which gives them uh, better performance than satellites that are, that are closer um, to Earth that you actually need more of. Um, yeah, so there's there's a number of technologies in that space. The nuclear one, uh, just last year, raised a seven hundred and fifty million dollar round, and they are uh, nearing uh, some really interesting tests with the state of Wyoming. Um, the, the nuclear reactor one that they've just, what they, the way they approach that is that they, they started by building a supercomputer that could model every electron within, uh, a variety of different existing nuclear reactors, uh, nuclear reactor technology. On the basis of that, they were able to invent a new way of doing nuclear, uh, reactors, um, called the traveling wave reactor. Um, the uh, nuclear reactor's default state is solid, so there's never any meltdown concerns. It's an incredibly safe way of doing uh, nuclear reacting. Additionally, it doesn't require enriched fuel to do the kind of nuclear reacting that it does, um, which makes is it so that you could... Is this power? Yeah, this is TerraPower, yep. Um, this really interesting model there. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a couple others that we uh, uh, that wouldn't potentially make good companies, uh, but we didn't end up launching them, or we wound them down uh, shortly after launch um, uh, for portfolio reasons, which is an interesting perspective. You know, like uh, part of you as an entrepreneur wants all of the ideas to go thrive, um, and sometimes that means killing ones that could have been uh good companies um but didn't uh, necessarily fit the the uh the way the portfolio was shaping up or how how much runway was left in the fund or a variety of different factors there that all end up being you know very human uh human factors but um but those technologies can still be licensed from intellectual ventures if they if you needed to take that forward as a a way of you know uh, uh, helping human flourishing um but uh, yeah, yeah, that was kind so of. If, if if there was a technology breakthrough, uh, is the intellectual property belonging to intellectual ventures or the fund, or what was the combination there? Yep, um, everything's owned by the fund until it spins out as a Series A. At Got the it. Series A mark, that's that's when we launched our um our incubations. Um. Uh, and then it was uh, generally owned, sometimes licensed. Um, in the case of the metamaterials technology, for example, uh, the mothership owned all of the patents and licensed out different uh, pieces of the spectrum to all of the different startups so that they didn't have to uh, negotiate that amongst themselves, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's generally how it worked. So, I mean, this sounds to be one of the most interesting jobs you could do in the world. Uh, and then you decided not to do it and move to Microsoft. Uh, how did that happen? And uh, what was the decision there? Yeah, well, uh, part of the decision was made for me. We opted not to raise a fourth fund. Mm. There were, and there's two reasons for that. One is um, uh, raising for a deep tech fund during the pandemic 
mm-hmm. ended up being very complicated and difficult. Um, deep tech funds uh, are hard to raise for in the first place. Yeah. And when you're not able to do that in person, um, that raises the bar in terms of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, we were we were about ready to really go on the roadshow for raising, you know, $150 million $250 million fund on the basis of the success of the small $50 million fund that we did as, as fund three. Um, and the pandemic hit right at that point. So we had a little bit of capital left in the $50 million fund, but not enough to hold our breath for two years. Additionally, um, there were, because the fund had originated as more of a licensing based endeavor, there were some structural yeah, fundamental structural things that made it, uh, that gave us kind of an administrative tax for launching companies outside of the fund. And so between those two things, we and the fund leadership opted not to raise a fourth fund. Um, and uh, my last six to nine months at, uh, at uh, the Invention Science Fund were primarily packaging up all of the remaining uh, proper intellectual property and and the potential startups um, and preparing the whole fund to go into carry mode. Um, go ahead. I thought you moved away not being a liar and you ended up doing. <laughs> this is this is the thing actually the the law degree ends up being a little superpower I have in my back pocket yeah. uh, because the in startup work whether it's licensing, whether it's cutting deals, whether it's formation, whether it's equity grants, there's a whole lot of legal work that goes into a lot of that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then, uh, I, so I started looking for a new gig, um, while I was still at the fund and wrapping things up. Um, I met my now boss, Andrea Harrison, turns out that they were trying to build a venture studio in the office of the CTO. Um, they had just gotten permission in December. I met her in January or February um, and came on in April, um, uh, about three days after I left uh, uh, Intellectual Ventures. Um, yeah, Intellectual Ventures, I, that, that fund uh, went on to wrap up. Um, there's It's now in full carry mode. There's nobody who's actually an employee of that fund right now. Um, and uh, And they're all off. Uh, doing doing other things. Most of them actually went with some of the startups that we were launching at that point in time. So, so um, describe you know what you're doing right now uh, with Microsoft Incubator and w- what is it and like how do you look at like what is the goal uh, you know when you're building inside you know a company like mm-hmm. Microsoft. Yeah. So I, I yeah I'll I'll describe this I, also as part of my description. I'm going to articulate some of the reasons why I believe this is the case. They aren't necessarily the reasons that all of my uh, program believes are the case. Um, uh, but I, I also don't think that the uh, many of my teammates would disagree with these pieces. But um, so we were building a venture studio here in the office of the CTO. And what that means is that uh, it does two different things. First is a zero to one motion which is where we take ideas and um, uh, lots of ideas, thousands of ideas, um, run it through a triage process similar to the one that I uh, articulated earlier, although shaped for the Microsoft context and culture. Um, uh, those ideas that move forward on the basis of you know working through our, our, our customer conversations on the basis of uh, uh, ascertaining technical feasibility, um, we prototype out, 
those prototypes, uh, you know, out of the thousands of ideas, we come up with hundreds of prototypes. Again, we drive those through customer validation. Um, and the ones that uh, are interesting enough, uh, we pitch to our investment committee. Um, now, we don't do all of that ideation. We don't do all of that uh, prototyping. That's often done by teams across Microsoft who have a great idea. Um, maybe they're even doing it as part of their day job for for their business unit. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, the business unit isn't interested in funding it. Maybe it's not uh, something that actually fits on their roadmap. Um, and so they come to us because what our uh, what the incubation studio does is that we um, uh, find help grow and incubate new big businesses for Microsoft. The intent is that anything coming through our program is something that isn't being done currently across the company and that it will generate a new business unit once it launches from our program. So, so all these ideas come to us. You, uh, we work with you in order to kind of get it to the seed stage pitch level where we bring it in front of our investment committee. That usually involves a, you know, a, a robust pitch deck, about six months worth of work in building out what that whole business uh, rationale, product rationale, customer rationale looks like, um, and developing all of the usual collateral that you would see uh, as part of a series seed um, deck. The investment committee says yay or nay, and uh, it uh, uh, if they say yes, then uh, that project gets funded in dollars and headcount, and given a certain amount of runway and certain milestones they need to meet in order for their next uh, funding rounds. Um, that's the second half of the incubator. Uh, that's the accelerator motion, whereas we have we have enough there that there's a seed of an idea, and now we're taking and it probably hasn't found product market fit yet, but there's a the, we can smell product market fit, um, and that's the one to a hundred motion. Now that there's a, enough of it there, there we're going to pour some resources on it and and grow it in a fast, lean startup uh, model way, um, not to be a new big business for Microsoft. Now, why did we start this inside of Microsoft? This is, I think there's three reasons. One is uh, it's great to have big new businesses. You know, Microsoft is a fantastic company and does fantastic work on all of its different uh, product lines and different, uh, you know, businesses. And it's, a, it's an incredibly diversified company. Um, but if you're, you know, going to make a company resilient for the longer term, it's important to be thinking uh, out five, seven years as to what, what should exist. Well, what, where is there... A uh, where's there going to be a market that Microsoft should play in at some point in time, and so it ends up being kind of a a bit of a moonshot factory on that score. Um, second, it's to build out a sustainable model for doing this inside the enterprise. Um, there are a lot of different organizations across Microsoft who do this in in uh, uh, important, um, more Horizon One and Horizon Two focused ways. Um, but there's something that shifts when you go to Horizon 3 where you have to think about the holistic business model as well. That's not necessarily the case when you're working at an incubator inside of um, uh, inside of an existing product group because you're you're looking at things that um, uh, are novel, are new, but they're, but they're uh, related more closely to what that particular business group is doing already. Yeah, um, you're, you're sort of limited by what your business you need to make. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and limited only in terms of scope, not in terms of um, uh, importance, not in terms of value, not in terms of ability to innovate by any means. Um, uh, there's just, just kind of different different kinds of incubators there. Um, 
uh, yeah, so so proving out that model so that you can point to it and say, hey, there's a there's a group who has done gone through all these these different iterations. They're in the office of the CTO, so they're they're not associated necessarily with any particular business group. Um, but they've worked with all of the other incubators across Microsoft, with all of the product groups, and they've come up with some best practices that are common to us all. Um, and and uh, and have it perhaps iterated them or been able to experiment with them in a very open way so that everybody's all boats are able to rise as a result of some of that work. The third reason, and this one's this one's my own rationale. The reason why you do this inside the enterprise rather than outside the enterprise, because it's hard to do inside the enterprise. There's, there's a lot of constraints you have. You can't uh, experiment with a product um, uh, easily when you're part of Microsoft because uh, there's a lot of things that Microsoft doesn't want to experiment on customers with, where a startup would be able to do that sort of thing. Um, the reason why you do it internally is because you intend on changing the culture in some significant ways. Um, my conjecture as to why you might go about this, and again, this is this is purely conjecture, um, is that if you don't have a tried, true, proven mechanism for doing innovation inside a given enterprise, you don't have a way of tying your executive's comp to it. And in my mental model of how innovation inside enterprises works, the only sustainable way of driving a company's innovation over the longer term is by tying executive comp to it. Now, so let's let's run a thought experiment, right? Let's say, you know, Satya says, okay, all of my CVPs, 15% of their comp is tied to innovation. You would have all kinds of innovation happening where it's actually not producing the effect that you know executive leadership intended, because uh, it, it's uh, it's not following a model. It's um it's it might be do innovation theater or it might be innovation uh, you know hand wavy innovation or things along those lines. Not, certainly not all of it would be. There would there would be some oh, great yeah. valid ways of doing innovating there too, but. Uh, contrast that with the with the possibility of say, uh, what if an incubator uh, was able to show, hey. Within the Windows org, we were able to launch these kinds of things using these kinds of processes. Um, and you could imagine someone say, and and have a data-driven, customer-driven way of showing that this model that we've built works. Now, Satya can say, ostensibly, again, this is all my conjecture, here's a program that has some data-driven ways of going about things, that has some customer, um, uh, great customer feedback mechanisms, um, and here's, here's its, uh, success metrics. Now I'm tying executive comp to programs like this or programs that can improve on their success metrics. All of a sudden you're able to do something long over the longer term because the executive comp's tied to it. And you've done some, some, at least experimental work in a model that has some legs under it, or at least has given you some internal benchmarks that uh, other novel programs can use as a way of, of uh, determining whether their way of going about things is good or not. Is that what happened you know, with our program? I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 it's, but that's uh, my only strong feeling as to why you would do what you're do, we're doing inside the enterprise is to sh shift that culture. Without, you know, uh, I don't know how much you can uh, talk about this, uh, 
like what are the success metrics uh, in this model that you're looking for? Like even for the projects that you've launched or about to launch, uh, what does the success metric look like? Yeah, so that's, uh, I'm going to answer that in three ways. First is um, we, it depends on the project. We take project because we're we're um, agnostic in terms of the kinds of technology that come to us or the kinds of uh, startups that come to us. Um, each of them requires their own kind of bespoke metrics. Go ahead. Are you taking in the impact? Because Microsoft is such a big organization, right? Like a 10 million idea is not as impactful as, you know, at a Microsoft as a company, right? Are you considering yep. impact, you know, similar to innovation fund that you work? Yep. And that's the second one. Uh, our goal is that uh, within three years of exiting our program, you're able to bring in a billion dollars of revenue. That's a pretty high bar. It is. It's one of the reasons why a lot of our, um, that, well, it's one of the reasons why we turn a lot of folks away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tell them, your idea could probably make 10 million or 100 million a year. Um, in fact, maybe you should go do it on the outside. Uh, it's not a bad business idea. It just doesn't hit our bar. And, and, Again, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned about the Invention Science Fund. There are a lot of good ideas there that 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 probably should happen, but not yeah. in that program. That wasn't our thesis, you know. Yeah. The program's thesis ends up being important there as well. Um, yeah. To me, it always made sense for large companies to have some kind of incubator or accelerator model, because. One of the reasons I think we are seeing in this bear cycle sort of like when the wave sort of you know falls down, you see who's a naked scenario. Um, I think any company who's which survives multi-decades has to have multiple large businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, looking back, a lot of companies didn't uh, look for long-term opportunities as much as they should. Like we can talk about like, uh, Amazon, you know, putting billion dollars into their phone, but I would argue the potential on the upside of success was so high, they should have put in, you know, one more billion and tried the next version. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would like argue the same with Facebook in a sense, like now they're doing this metaverse thing um, and sort of again retreating that back now. But I feel like even Facebook with all its cash flow, uh, didn't really think um, because they always self-constrained themselves to be a social company. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that's sort of like a self-imposed mental model on themselves. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Uh, I would not impose themselves like a social company. Yeah, you mm-hmm. were good at Facebook and WhatsApp, but I mean, look at how many great technologies that came out from Facebook open source community and like putting that social as a blanket on your company, I think sort of set a backstage for all these technologies which could be you know productionized and you know capitalized mm-hmm. right uh that's i feel like a lot of companies especially the large companies with very good cash flow sort of missed out on business opportunities because of that reason that's my personal view on like a lot of companies could have it if it is well run mm-hmm. um and should have it because of this reason right it's sort mm-hmm. of like you are the innovation dilemma that you'll encounter at some point as a large company. And you have to have a sort of a backup backstopping mechanism to that innovation dilemma, which every company will eventually face. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like the innovation uh, accelerator or incubator would sort of act as that, uh, you know, that part of small investment. It's sort of like an insurance to the, uh, to innovation dilemma. 
that you will yeah. eventually encounter anyways uh, if you're yeah. last yeah, no, I think you're right. There's a, there's an inherent problem there too, though, is that um, uh, innovation is inherently a yo low yield activity. Um, yeah. And so within, and it's my kind of rule of thumb that within two or three years of any program like ours existence, um, finance is going to come and say, where's the revenue? Where's the ROI? And if you don't have a data-driven way of showing your your anticipated revenue, your anticipated ROI on the basis of your activities, then uh, it's entirely legitimate that you get cut. There's a there's a there's data-driven ways of showing that the whole venture ecosystem depends on the fact that you're able to show future revenue on the basis of what you're doing now. Uh, that's how you raise funds, right? Um, and so every uh, innovation program inside an enterprise has to have that same data-driven hygiene. Um, the thing is, is that uh, sometimes individuals will, or, or individual programs will conflate that data-driven hygiene um, with having to uh, have really strong ideas at the very beginning, which kills your idea generation. Uh, mm -hmm. capabilities. Idea generation and idea validation are two very distinct modes of uh, developing any innovation program. Don't let your idea validation get into and muck up your idea generation because then you're going to have a lot of uh, incremental ideas, not breakthrough ideas. But also, don't let your idea generation muck up your idea validation, mm -hmm. because if you do that, then you're going to have innovation theater and hand-wavy innovation because there hasn't been any actual triage. At, at, the, at the best, it's, 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 you know, it's um, uh, the hippo problem. The highest paid person in the room gets to pick whatever the ideas go forward, which is a terrible way of making decisions. In fact, in fact I, I, any idea validation mechanism shouldn't have people picking as part of it. It should be entirely driven by working through um, uh, experiments, uh, customer-driven experiments, and um, uh, well, and technology feasibility experiments, so that the data shows the way in which it should go, rather than anybody existing on anybody's fiat. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, you've been part of, I think, idea clubs. I would say at incubation, uh, I mean, the fund, and now with you know incubating different ideas, and you've also invested in a, in companies, right? What are some of the ideas do you think like as opportunities? Like if you had to go out and do it and don't, they don't have to be like a billion dollar ideas, right? Mm -hmm. They could be 10 million, 100 billion. It's like, are there ideas that you're thinking about? Like, hey, someone should do this, someone should do this that, you know, you're actively thinking about or like off top of your mind? Yeah, you know, so I, uh, where I've really landed in my career is, um, uh, on the creating conditions for entrepreneurs to thrive. And so myself, my ideas, I have a bunch of fun ideas, but none of them are like going to be billion dollar ideas. They're, they're just ideas that I'd have a lot of fun with. The Where I intend on going after Microsoft, because there's always going to be an after, um, and where I think the market will be uh, perfectly poised for my own self, is in a... Um, Synthetic Biology and Neurobiology Venture Studio. Um, that's my intent, uh, you know, five, seven years out when, um, when knock on wood, I leave Microsoft. Um, the reason for that is that uh, we actually know very little about the interface between when the software is on 
and the hardware on which it runs. Um, things like emotions are still very strange to us. Things like the effect of hormones are still very strange to us. And we almost treat a lot of our neurological and, and uh, neurobiological capabilities as uh, something we still poke at with uh, wires or uh, top off with uh, different sorts of substances. Um, part of the reason for that is the vast amount of complexity uh, there. Uh, but we're in the age of AI, the amount of complexity, uh, we now have a, an agent that helps us with that set, that complexity set. Um, we're also going to need to develop our, our hardware and user interfaces for working with our own neurology and, and, um, biology in that fashion. And so I'm giving both of those industries kind of a, a five to seven year swag as to them being able to be to the point where they need to be in order for a synthetic biology and a neurobiology venture studio to be useful. But that's my, that's my trend and conjecture there in terms of what ideas would I want to work on? Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um so we are almost at the end of our conversation and I ask all my guests this one question, which is um, what is your information diet? Like what are the places that you hang out on the internet to consume information? Yeah. Yeah, I um, I read a lot. Uh, I have a curated uh, Feedly of uh, several thousand um, blogs, news sources, um, uh, that I that I read routinely, uh, um, and I and I also consume probably uh, between seventy and a hundred books a year. Um, what are some of the interesting books that you've read recently? Or yeah, like, are your all-time favorites? Yeah, no, certainly. I'm I'm reading a book on how emotions are made. Um, I'm also reading a book, uh, actually, I've read this book several times now, it just came out of Stanford's D school in December called idea flow, which actually is a great read for anybody who's interested in a lot of what I described. It does a, a fantastic summarization of a lot of, um, uh, the innovation mechanisms, particularly at the zero to one motion inside the enterprise or inside any company. It also gives a personal practice that one should follow if you want to be more innovative yourself, which I have been doing for two decades and I find super valuable for my own growth. Um, what is your reading habit like if you're reading 70 books a year? Like, what does the habit look like for you? Yeah, I read for a couple hours. Um, a week in the mornings. Um, and I often read to fall asleep at night. Um, but yeah, I, I dedicate at least five hours a week to reading. Um, I, I also happen to be a speed reader. It's just, the that's, that's how I read. I only have one speed. You would have so. made a great liar. Right. Right. Although my law school professors have had me back to talk about innovation for some of their classes. And at least one of them has said, wow, that guy seems like he's a, he's a nice, bright student, but he's never going to be an attorney. So <laughs> um, this was a fascinating conversation. I, I don't want to like extend the time, but I think I could keep going on for an hour if, um, you know, if I, if I have to ask you questions. Um, but yeah, overall, this was super fascinating conversation for me, super, you know, interesting, uh, the thoughts you have around innovation. I think, I think it will be very useful. Listen for the audience. Um, so thanks for taking time and coming onto the show, Taylor. Of course. Well, thanks for having me. I, uh, 
uh, I've, I've enjoyed your other episodes and uh, I'm excited to be on. Um, thank you.